Okay, um, so our reading today is from John chapter 11. Uh, we've got ourselves up to verse 45, and we're going to be going through to the beginning of chapter 12, um, verse 11. I'm going to look at it in two parts. In the first section, I'd like to focus on the different ways that people responded to the resurrection of Lazarus that we were thinking about last week. And um, we're going to be thinking about different types of belief. Then when we get to chapter 12, I'd like to focus on the different types of Christian service. What we can learn from two or possibly three women who we can see in this passage. And if you know the passage well, you might be wondering where on earth is the third woman? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. But let's read the first um, part first. So we are in chapter 11 and reading from verse 45. So it's following on from the, the raising of Lazarus. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realise that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, uh, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. Many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleaning before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it so that they might arrest him. You know, everyone in this story was a kind of believer. But what type of believer were they? We know from John 3 and 16 that anyone who believes on Jesus will be saved, don't we? But we also know that it's not quite as simple as that because there are different ways of believing. And you might have heard it said that if you don't believe in the right way, then you're not saved. And that's true. But we need to be careful not to be overly prescriptive about what true belief looks like because it's not the same for everyone, is it? Many of us have not had the same uh, pronounced and clear salvation experience that we sometimes hear about. Uh, many of us were saved so long ago that we can barely remember what happened. And many of us express our faith in different ways and, and perhaps struggle with our faith in different ways. So on the one hand, it's right to highlight what we mean by saving faith. 
But on the other hand, that shouldn't leave us anxious about whether we're truly saved or not. We shouldn't be worrying about whether or not we've ticked the right boxes and said the right things to, to make it count. So I want to use our first passage to try to give some reassurance about that by exploring the different types of belief that we can see in the way people responded to the raising of Lazarus. The differences aren't subtle, so hopefully it'll be quite easy for each of us to know which type of belief best reflects our own position. The raising of Lazarus from the dead was an amazing miracle, wasn't it? And as we, we read in, in verse 45, many of the Jews believed in Jesus because of it. We don't know exactly what they believed about Jesus because the gospel as we know it wasn't being preached yet, was it? But bearing in mind that John's gospel is all about helping people to believe who Jesus is and through faith to have life in him, that's what he says towards the end of his gospel. When John says these people believed, Although their faith was based on a limited understanding, we can be sure it was still a genuine faith. It was the kind of faith that God is looking for. But in contrast to that, let's think about the other witnesses that we, we read about in, in verse 46. The verse starts with the word but. So it's clear that these people responded differently to the miracle. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. They obviously believed what happened. They'd seen it with their own eyes. But instead of welcoming the sign as something from God, they chose to report it to the authorities. So they believed the facts, but they weren't drawn to Jesus. And then we've got the third group of people who were, of course, the, uh, the chief priests and the Pharisees. And they also believed what happened. Uh, verse 47 says that they believed in many of the other miracles too. But their belief led them to total opposition. They didn't want to follow Jesus themselves and they didn't want anyone else to follow him either. Why was that? Well, they were fearful. They were fearful about where it might all be going, fearful about where it might lead. They didn't want anything to change the status quo. And it seems from verse 48 that their motivation was really down to self-interest. They were concerned that if everyone started believing in Jesus, it would provoke the Romans to step in and take away all the things that they enjoyed. Their temple, you notice they call it their temple, not God's temple, their temple, their nation, their positions of privilege, and their way of life. So I think we've got three groups of people and they all believed in a way, in, 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 in different ways. Uh, we have some who believed, shall we say, enthusiastically, uh, the ones who accepted the teachings of Jesus to whatever extent that they understood them. These were the ones who were delighted with everything that Jesus was doing and saying, and, and they wanted to follow Jesus. 
We're going to see people like that in our next passage, by the way, um, people who, who, sit, who sit down at a dinner to honour Jesus. These were people who supported Jesus. They were supportive. They, 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 they wanted more of Jesus. Then we've got the ones who um, believed in the magic, but not the magician if I might put it like that. Um, and that's actually probably how they saw it. And we're going to see people like that in the next passage as well. Um, at least some of the crowds um, who came um, seem to be just as interested in seeing Lazarus, a man raised from the dead, as they were in seeing Jesus. They were spectators looking for popular attractions. And genuine Christian faith shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't be just about the popular attractions, the, the uh, experience of Christian events like YFR or the singing or uh, the good buffet at conferences or hanging out with nice people. Uh, that's all part of it, of course, but it also needs to be about a desire to follow Jesus in our day-to-day -day lives, even when we're not in the company of other Christians. So we had the second group of people um, and then the third group of people were the ones who believed with varying degrees of hostility and they were the religious leaders ironically um, and in our next passage again I think we see um, we see it as well in Judas Iscariot um, but likewise today despite believing or at least recognizing the importance of Christian faith to so many people and the value of good works done by churches in communities all over the world and despite often agreeing with many of the core values and principles embedded in christianity we've got atheists like richard dawkins um, who seem determined to try to undermine and destroy it now here's a question for you which category do you fall into are you secretly trying to destroy the church? Thought not. Do you like being part of the community and going to church events, but honestly, you don't really believe in the supernatural, do you? You don't really believe in a sovereign God who sent his son to die for you. You don't really believe in the return of the Lord Jesus or an eternal afterlife. Is that you? No, I didn't think that either. So how about this one? Do you believe in the truth of the gospel? Maybe your faith is a bit up and down at times. Maybe you sometimes have doubts. Maybe you feel that despite knowing what God wants you to do or, or not do, you're like the Apostle Paul and sometimes do precisely the opposite. But despite all that, you still believe in Jesus, don't you? In, in who he is and what he's done and, and why he did it. And regardless of how many times you might feel you do the, the wrong things, you still want to live a life that the Lord doesn't find too disappointing. In fact, maybe you want even more than that, to live a life that is actually pleasing to him. 
you might feel I'm not um, you know I'm making a generalization here maybe I'm talking more about myself than than uh, anybody else but you might feel that your faith is very small but it's what we believe and not how much we believe it that really counts in Mark 9 a man says to Jesus I do believe help me overcome my unbelief growing in faith is an ongoing work and we'll always need the Lord's help with that. But no matter how weak we might think our faith is, let's never doubt our salvation. Let's keep forever. Now, before we move on to chapter 12, we should just comment on what Caiaphas said in verse 50. Let me just read that again. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. On its own, it's not such a remarkable thing, um, although it does mark a significant change of approach. Previously, um, the Pharisees had just been trying to undermine Jesus, to discredit him, to try to stop him doing what he was doing and saying what he was saying. But now, because of what Caiaphas said, this is where they actually started plotting to kill him. Verse 53, so from that day on, they plotted to take his life. We can't read what Caiaphas said without being reminded of what Jesus went on to do for us on the cross, can we? And it was the same with John when he finally got round to writing his gospel many years later, with the benefit of hindsight and led by the Holy Spirit, of course, he could see the statements as something influenced by, by God. Um, he could see that it was a, a prophecy. And by the way, I mean, I think it's obvious, but just to be absolutely beyond doubt, Caiaphas only said the bit in verse 50. He didn't go on to say the bit in the following, the following um, verses. So John could see this as a prophecy from Caiaphas, even though Caiaphas didn't even know or want to make a prophecy about Jesus doing anything good. But that's not such a strange thing, is it? Um, we know from Numbers 22 that God can even speak through a donkey. So why not another donkey like Caiaphas? Um, Peter writes in 2 Peter 1 that, um, that other prophecies um, didn't rely on the prophet's understanding of what they were saying. So likewise, as I say, without knowing it, Caiaphas said something that was absolutely key to the future gospel, that Jesus would die as our substitute. Or as Paul puts it very simply in Romans 5 and 8, Christ died for us. And the result of that death, of course, is what John then goes on to talk about in verse 52. The opportunity for anyone who believes, regardless of their race or nationality, to become a child of God. To be brought together as one in that special thing that we call the church, the body of Christ. And that's what we're in, along with every other believer who has ever lived uh, it's a hard thing to get our minds around, isn't it? But it's a wonderful thing that joins us together with every believer in the world today and every believer since the day of Pentecost. So let's leave chapter 11 and move on. Uh, time is rushing on. 
um, chapter 12, reading from verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about half a litre of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to, put, um, to what was put in it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will not always have the poor among you, but you will, you will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well, for on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. There are at least two women in the passage, but as I said at the beginning, there's possibly three, um, which I'm going to um, come on to. And they, they each serve the Lord in in different ways. The two women we can see clearly are Mary and Martha and um, in Luke 10 um, as I'm sure you all remember we're told that there was a bit of a spat between them wasn't there. Martha got a bit cross about being left to do all the work and Mary just sitting at the Lord's feet um, and yet Jesus said on that occasion that Mary had chosen what was better. Does that mean he values some forms of service more than others? No, I don't think it does mean that at all. Think about Martha first. Um, you know, this was a special meal. It says it was to honour Jesus. So I think it was probably a meal to say thank you for the raising of Lazarus. And it seems that although it wasn't in Mary and Martha's house, um, we're told in the other Gospels that it was at the house of a, a guy called Simon the leper. Um, it seems that Martha was in charge of the catering and absolutely vital to the event. And she did it without complaint. I think that's what was missing in Luke 10. Martha begrudged it or perhaps she thought she wasn't being appreciated enough. I think when Jesus said Mary chose what was better, he was mainly referring to her attitude. And now Martha had the right attitude. Which reminds me of Romans 12 and 1. The encouragement for us to use our whole lives in service for the Lord. Because even the most mundane and practical things, and by the way, I'm not saying catering falls into that category. Far from it. Um, but even the most mundane things can be an act of worship that the Lord appreciates if it's done with the right attitude. Now that was Martha, what about Mary? 
what she did was likewise an act of worship and love and devotion. It was also unconventional because the convention was to pour oil or perfume on the head um, if you wanted to um, honour someone. And it was also convention for women not to appear before men with their hair untied. But Mary had no time for conventions, did she? She didn't care about all of that. She just wanted to pour out her heart as she poured out that perfume. Why she did go for the feet, I'm not entirely sure. Um, maybe it was because washing someone's feet was a sign of hospitality. We see that in the, um, in the upper room. Um, but here we have Mary in her devotion, just wanting to go one better, I think, using perfume instead of water to, to, cleanse, to cleanse his feet. So I think there was, we see that there, but I think also it might be another reason why Mary went for the feet. Um, I think she was inspired by the third woman that I mentioned in the introduction. This was the woman that we read about in Luke 7. It's the woman who lived a sinful life, but knew the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus. And she did a similar thing, didn't she? She wiped his feet with her hair and she poured perfume on them. So I think Mary may have been moved by her example and she just wanted to do the same thing. And if so, it shows how the ripple effect of one good work, one act of service, one expression of love can make a difference way down the line in ways that we might never have thought of. And even if it wasn't what put the, that wasn't what put the idea in Mary's head, it's still true, isn't it, that individual acts of love and kindness can and do spur others on to do the same. That's what it says in Hebrews 10, 24, by the way. Now, we're nearly done, but I do just want to just talk about this, um, because some have speculated how long the fragrance might have lasted on the body of the Lord Jesus. And I think that's a lovely thought, a lovely thing to, to dwell on. You know, the cross was less weak away, and some have wondered if the fragrance was right there to the end, um, maybe even in the tomb. Now that might be reading too much into verse 7, but without doubt the fragrance did have a lasting effect, and without doubt the fragrance of every good work we do will go much further than we imagine making a difference in the world and being remembered by the Lord for all eternity. I think that would certainly be true of Mary's perfume, but let's not forget about Martha. She also created a lovely fragrance, didn't she? The smell of the meal that she so lovingly prepared was also a fragrance that filled the house. And like I said in um, about Romans 12 and 1, it's not just religious duties which please God. It's everything that we do as we present our bodies as living sacrifices. If we do that, we know from 2 Corinthians 2 that we'll be to God the pleasing fragrance of Christ. And not just to God, that, that fragrance goes upward 
and outward to God and to everyone else we come into contact with. That's the ripple effect of all types of Christian service. So hopefully I've been able to show from our two passages today that firstly, true saving faith is something that might be small, but it's not so hard to see that we should ever doubt that we've got it. That said, the Lord does want to see us growing in our faith and we should be asking him for help with that day by day. Secondly, we all have the opportunity to serve the Lord in so many ways, in church life, with other people, and even when we're on our own. But it's not what we do that creates that special fragrance that we've been thinking about. It's the attitude with which we do it. And likewise, we can ask the Lord for help with that also.